Kill the uncle, save the mother, in honor of the Northman, who is cinema's worst uncle. Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with a best worst because he's scary but also sexy. It's Matthew Good in Stoker. It's me, David the Seven. I'm going to say Uncle Remus because James Basquette is good in the movie, but the movie's bad for culture. Also, he's not actually an uncle to any of the characters, which makes him the worst. Uh, and I am David Ehrlich. For the purposes of this episode, I will be referred to only as the Elden Lord from now on. Oh, Jesus. And Jesus I, I am going to go with uh, the man from Uncle. <laughs> pick, your, pick your poison. Either one of them. Are, are either of them uncles? Are either of them the man from Uncle? Uh, I don't know if any of them are, are uncles in the film, but they are, you know, they're Uncle. They, they, are, they are both Uncle. <laughs> it's true. I'm Uncle. I am Uncle. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 389, Pandemic 109. It's the week of Wednesday, April 20th. That's the day that in New York, in 1948, uh, the city doubled its subway fare from five cents to ten cents. I love how niche these are getting. <laughs> yeah, nothing notable happens on 420 <laughs> ever in all yeah. throughout all history. I think we all know why, because everyone's uh, too chilled out and relaxed. Uh, <laughs> was it Hitler's birthday? It is. Look, it's Hitler's day? birthday. It's the Columbine massacre. Lots of horrible no shit happens on 420. But look. And it was 415 <laughs> that the uh, Titanic resurrected. Yeah. Um, uh, among it was in 1948, New York increased its subway f- fare by 100%. Which is the outrageous. Titanic sunk on April 15th. Every idiot knows that, David. No, it, it, I thought it sunk on the 12th. And then it, it was resurrected on the 15th. No, no, no. It sunk on the night. It hit the iceberg on the 14th. It sunk on the 15th. Really? I know this because my dad's birthday is on the 15th. I, I don't day. doubt you. I uh, we've talked about this on this podcast about how my dad's birthday is just like coincides with a bunch of like Da Vinci was born that day, I think. April 14th. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I thought it was April 12th. It was 1912. I guess I just got 1912. the turned around in my brain. The, but, you know, the, the, the drawing um, of Rose is, is dated of April 14th. There is not a scene in Titanic where Jack Dawson is like, Rose. It's April 14th. Do you know what that means? No, so, because they, they find the drawing and I know they, they have do. her daughter read the date. And but, she says uh, April 14th, 1912. They don't sear it into my brain. You know, if, if uh, Leonardo DiCaprio or Kate Winslet isn't saying it or really any one of the film's many supporting characters on Titanic. Anyway, it did indeed sink on the night of April 14th. April 15th. Resurrected the famously on the 17th. Seth Rogen. Uh, yeah, it rose again as the, uh, as the prophet's. <laughs> Promised. Anyway, David, do we have any reviews? Patches is gone again this week. You might have guessed. He keeps saying he's going to come back, but understandably has a, a baby to raise. So uh, he's not back yet. But uh, do we have any reviews? We anyway? have a cup to raise. Uh, yeah, Patches was was raring to go this week. There were yeah. uh, there were there were hints, signs on the horizon that he might be coming back already, like a injured athlete returning from from the IR. But uh, at the last minute, citing exhaustion. Uh, <laughs> like all celebrities away. who have a breakdown excited yeah. exhaustion and someone out. was eating too much sushi and uh they are not here shout out the always relevant jeremy piven reference um <laughs> okay, we do have one review from and Lori. i don't know who else you know what the and is for 
uh, who usually comes with Lori. But we do have Anne Lori, who says great tunes. Always really into the music choices between segments and often find myself Googling to find a certain song. I wonder if the podcast would consider adding song names to the episode description. Anyway, great stuff. This show is my first stop when I've seen a new release and want to hear hot takes. Thank you, Anne Lori. Dave, I swear I've seen song titles, maybe not in the episode titles, but somewhere at some point in my life. Yeah, in our long history of uh, being a podcast, I used to do that. And somewhere around the one uh, artist that has ever contacted us to have uh, me remove music from the podcast, I was like, why make this searchable? Right. So <laughs> if you, uh, uh, Hobo Jackson, if you ever, um, I don't know why either. It was like the week his like second album came out. Hobo and, Jackson. Yeah. Johnson, mm -hmm. Hobo Johnson, Hobo, Hobo Johnson. Johnson. Sorry, yes, that's yes, not Hobo really the Johnson. part that was catching my attention. But, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, ever since then, uh, if you want to know, you could tweet at me, or I guess email us at fitwr dot podcast at gmail dot com. If you aren't on the uh, Hellscape uh, site, I understand, uh, and I will absolutely let you know. Um, and then you could find it for yourself. And buy it like everybody wants to. I don't know why this is a difficult people for system or system for people, but uh, I decided uh, if we're gonna keep using all this music without permission, might as well make it uh, harder to find. That's also why Charlie is at the end of each episode over the music because it messes up algorithms well, that are listening for long clips right. of music. It was a sad so my, day so my when children uh, are when Hobo Jackson took uh, Johnson. 40, for Hobo Johnson took 40% of the profits from that uh, Fighting in the War Room episode. Well, if I you know. ever come across an episode where there are no music breaks, they're just 30-second pieces of silence, that was the episode. It was really nice. Uh, well, um, <laughs> the, uh, how, yeah, I, I may not remember the day the Titanic sank, but I do know that 40% of zero is... Still zero. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to leave us a review, directly contact either Katie, Dave, Patches, or myself, your newly anointed Elden Lord. Please go on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room, leave us a review, or you can email us, Dave. Where can they do that? Uh, you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. I have been poked by our listener Zoe, who's like, you haven't been reading my email because I've been backlogging it so we could save it for, uh, to not talk about Star Wars. Uh, but since she has poked me, I'm going to read it. And because we we're talking about emails. Elden Ring this episode anyway, I feel like the <laughs> exactly. dam is broken. Well, surprisingly, this is about Star, Star Wars. Uh, hey guys, I'm here from Australia. I was just listening to your Sundance episode and the discussion of wondering if Charlie was the right age for Phantom Menace got me thinking about my own little sister and how I'm showing her Star Wars, which I don't know, I thought you might be interested in, but I could completely wrong. I'm 24 and she is almost three. My other four younger sisters and I grew up with Star Wars from the word go, and now so has my sister. She watches Return of the Jedi on repeat, and not for the Ewoks, she loves Jabba and the Tatooine stuff, as well as Vader and the Emperor. This love for it was discovered uh, when uh, this love for it was discovered when I was like, it's my responsibility as an older sister to show her these movies. And just the o uh, original trilogy, because I want her to be that kind of kid, which is like guys uh, like Ray and Kylo are cool, but have you heard, heard of Bib Fortuna? And yes, she does know who Bib Fortuna is and can name him when he's on screen. 
Uh, she also loves The Mandalorian and Boba Fett, although we had to put a stop to her watching Mando because even though I love it, it was a bit much for a two and a half year old. Understandable. That was mm-hmm. Dave. And with the end of the book of Boba Fett, we have now taken to rewatching the last uh, half hour finale, which she just, or the last half hour of the finale, which she just calls Rancor because she loves the Rancor or not. Rancor coming to Disney Plus in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> loves the show, love the show, needs more Galaxy of Heroes talk, and I'm not being ironic here. I generally enjoy those segments. Zoe from Melbourne. All right. I have, uh, I have several things to say in addition okay. to thank you for that lovely review. Um, lovely review. One, just an update to Zoe that I, I currently have four of the 10 uh, little slots that I need to get the ultimate power for uh, what's his face, the Emperor. Um, so the Eternal Sith Emperor, that's his name. Yeah. So that's going yeah, along. Eternal Emperor. Question to Dave and the collective. Are there bib Fortunas for babies? Ooh. Oh, I imagine mm. there's a bib Fortuna with bib Fortuna on it. And you just have to know if you're getting the joke or not. Close enough. If, there, if someone's not selling those on the Internet, then they've fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish that we could sell those and uh, get away with it. But unfortunately, Disney famously even more litigious than Hobo Johnson. Um <laughs> My, oh, what else was I going to say? I had one other thing. Oh, yeah. Weird. I got an email this week. Katie, maybe you got this email too. Maybe even Dave. I don't know. That it was promoting the new, like, baby aged counting book that is being made as a tie in for Jurassic World Dominion. Wow. And it's, uh, it's like a baby board book with the blue, the Velociraptor from Jurassic World. And they wanted to send me a review copy as if. Mm-hmm. As if, first of all, as if there's even a as market. As if Asa would review it. As if I would review it, as if Asa would review it. As if there's like a market to review um, informally, uh, <laughs> 1,100 words, about an eight-word uh, baby mm-hmm. board book. But I don't, I don't know if I've got an email like that. I, I did not respond. Um, that really felt like a, you just send me this and we never talk about it again proposition. But uh, yeah, I did not get that email. Um, but I mean, I've had this thought about the Jurassic Park movies that like I would love to show it to my kids because Jurassic Park, the movie rules and they love dinosaurs, but like they're just so not ready for it. No, but also, um, Katie, but I like the I, idea of like that I would let Charlie or Sam, let alone my own flesh and blood, my own kin <laughs> read a Jurassic World. Yeah, book? no, I know. <laughs> I don't they think so. they've misjudged you. And they start in third grade. I read Michael Crichton when I was like maybe in fourth grade, like probably way too young for it. No, I think that's definitely fine. That's that's a whole like gateway to adulthood. I do like Star Wars at three as long as the three year olds into it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I feel like Charlie in particular, especially now that I have two kids and see how they can be really different. Like Charlie has been into watching things that are way above him uh, since a really young age. Um, to the point that like we were watching Back to the Future for a long time. Like Star Wars has never quite worked for him, even though like he's now at an age where like some of his friends are into it. Like that might change at any moment. Um, but Dave, I was telling you how I like had told him about the concept of everything everywhere all at once. And he was like, can I watch that? I was like, no, <laughs> we'll fine. We'll start with Spider-Verse and work our way up. Uh, uh, but kids are different. Every one of them is ready for different Asa things. Asa is age. almost two and a half has still never come even close to sitting all the way through a movie. It still haven't really shown him a movie. He watched some of Paddington do on an airplane, but he does uh, chant to himself "Donkey" as if he's Shrek in his crib. Yeah. And uh, Where did the he other learn day, this? the other day, that's because I thought it was funny to say "Donkey" when I was uh, <laughs> teaching about donkeys. And the other day during breakfast, when uh, he asked for more uh, whatever he was eating, and I said, "What's the magic word?" He said, "Fidelio." So uh, <laughs> that's where we're at. 
Uh, you can teach kids a lot of weird stuff. Uh, but okay. I'm also taking Charlie to see Sonic the Hedgehog 2. So just be clear that like taste is not a consistent thing. I hear that's the winter soldier of Sonic the Hedgehog movies. Oh, Asa also does say In- chaos reigns every time that he takes apart his puzzle, uh, which he does with great relish. I don't know if that's true or not. It is very true, and there is video of it on the internet, on my Twitter feed. We have that same puzzle. (laughs) On my Instagram, yeah. Good puzzle. Uh, Uh, Wait, how is Sonic the Winter Soldier of Sonic movies? You'll, you tell me after after I. This I requires have a me to remember question. the plot of Winter Soldier. So I'll, apparently, I'll Nucky, Nuck, Knuckles is sort of like a Bucky. I don't know if that's a spoiler. I'm sorry Nucky. if I didn't I didn't gong the uh, Sonic Two spoilers. Uh, uh, I look forward leave us to a review. the eyeliner on um on Knuckles. Yeah, leave us a review. Send us an email: fitwr dot podcast at gmail dot com. I've seen what on Twitter is just called the Nick Cage movie, and I learned last night trying to text my friends about how much I liked it that it's that's because it's it's kind of a bitch to write out the unbearable weight of massive talent every time. The ads mm-hmm. just call it massive talent now. Excellent, just massive talent, which is a weird title for this movie, uh, which stars Nicolas Cage playing himself, two versions of himself actually. Uh, and he gets at a, a low point in his career. This is a fictional character, Nick Cage, uh, who is struggling to connect to his 16 year old daughter and his wife with whom he is getting a divorce, basically because he is selfish, uh, sinks low enough that he decides he's going to quit acting after he takes one more gig that his agent played by Neil Patrick Paris, uh, pitches to him, which is to go to a millionaire's, uh, Catalonian a state um and just be there for his birthday party and the day before and uh cage thinks doesn't know really why he's going but wants to do like one last hurrah to pay off some outstanding debts and uh pedro pascal plays this millionaire who uh is named javi and has invited nicholas cage because he had sent nicholas cage a script that he had written but is also the head arms dealer in uh, most of Spain. Uh, so um, Nick Cage gets wrapped up with the CIA, uh, a CIA agent played by Tiffany Haddish, uh, ropes him in to try to do some um, reconnaissance on a kidnapping that has some political implications. Uh, but really, this movie ends up being a very nice buddy comedy between Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal uh, that I think would work even if Nicolas Cage's character was just an actor because the specific references and clips from Nicolas Cage's canon do exist. But the movie is genuinely funny and uh, manages to uh, move along at a good clip uh, the director, uh, Tom Gormican, was also the co-writer uh, with a man named Kevin Etten. They both were both working on uh, the Fox sitcom Ghosted and not really digging it. So they came up with this idea for the unbearable weight of massive talent. 
uh, being a Nick Cage movie because one of Tom's friends had recently recently become Nick Cage's agent. Ah. Uh, kind of worked out there. So they actually worked with uh, Nick Cage's representation to finesse the script a little bit before Nick Cage saw it. And then Cage came in and had notes himself. And altogether, it actually makes a very coherent movie that doesn't hang as much on being one long Nicolas Cage joke as I think uh, a lot of people feared it did, given how weird uh, the premise is. Does it benefit from it being about Nicolas Cage, though? Yes, I think it benefits about it being about a large action star who genuinely it, it benefits about it benefits from what we perceive Nicolas Cage to be based on his media performances uh, and how uh, if that was an actual person, how ridiculous it would be. So it's all blown out and there are specific references to you know the rock and face off and all the all the big hits okay uh, but those references aren't what the stories held on there's more uh deference given to uh the power of cinema that is paddington 2 uh than I've, any nicholas cage movie wow David. so i i dave the sense i get is that i don't want to know more about that site unseen but several people have told me that the movie is very Paddington heavy yeah, there's a couple of jokes. Uh, you're they're absolutely right. It's probably won't work if it's uh, spoiled for you, but that's like the type of movie it is. But you'd say it's, it's probably the most Paddington-heavy non-Paddington film ever made, <laughs> other uh, than your Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, so so far, um, it definitely uh, is, and it's a uh, that level of kind. I think it's not that there aren't sequences in this movie where both the main characters are on LSD and are being super paranoid. And it's not that there isn't a, you know, some gun violence uh, at the end, but it's all ridiculous, like true lies level gun violence where like nobody's really getting shot in any dramatic way. And it's a lot of car flips and vehicle stunts. It's just got a, it's actually got a heart to it, which I was surprised because it could have been, uh, a skewering of some kind uh, but I don't think it ends up being mean in any sort of way I mean it's also a pleasant surprise because the only other movie off the top of my head I and mean, I'm not looking at his IMDb page right now that Tom Gormican has directed is a pretty reviled romantic comedy from back in the day when we still made those with young people called That Awkward Moment um, Ooh, with like Miles that? Teller and Michael B. Jordan I want to say and Imogen Poots um, mm. Zach Efron. Wow. So wow. checking out. Let's see. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Wow, Mackenzie Davis is in there. Yeah, I was um, looking back at the Kevin Etten, the writer, who has also been on like Workaholics and has been like a story editor on uh, what is it, Desperate Housewives. Well, that's cool. So I mean, it's, it's know, hard to track. You, you, yeah, the, you don't want to have to judge somebody based on one thing forever. I mean, it is the kind of premise uh, that you know, with with Cage's involvement, participation. You want, you know, in your dream scenario, you want like a Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman like team, I and mean, they've already sort of gone down that rabbit hole. But uh, Tom Gormican probably wouldn't have been my my first choice. Um, but it sounds like the movie has some personality of its own to it. I think the thing that I felt was most different. Uh, I mean, it, it is most different by being the correct amount of uh, different sides of Nick Cage's persona is it moves like an action movie, 
but is a comedy and occasionally uses characters thinking it's a drama to make comedic moments. So it, I, it feels like people that have, you know, been working for a little bit on, on television sitcoms. Um, and because of that, there isn't a lot of time uh, for the plot to sit in any one twist. And so a lot of times there'll be like, Nick Cage is working for the CIA and he has to get in this computer room. And that it's, is almost its own complete sketch separate from the movie because by the time it's over, things have escalated once again. And it escalates and it escalates and then sneaks in Demi Moore for one shot at the end uh, playing herself. And uh, it's out. It's, it's super pleasant. I recommend it to everybody. My question that I wanted to ask you is just after, and I don't remember how much I talked about this with the bubble, but Pedro Pascal, I just constantly like want to see in more things and he is good in everything and is good in the bubble, which sucks. Um, but it sounds like this is maybe sort of what I've been waiting for. Yeah, he does a lot of great face work along with the cinematography. <laughs> just to, to prove ride... he can after all that time in the Mando helmet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to just like ride that line between like, is this guy menacing or do we like love him as much as we love his relationship with Nick Cage? Mm. Uh, because in front of the, you know, big movie star, he not only wants to work with him, but he also finds like a genuine connection with him uh, as a person. Uh, but constantly we're being told he's this like ruthless drug dealer. So occasionally you have to question uh, the motivations behind his actions, uh, even as those actions get more and more ridiculous. Katie, your enthusiasm to see Pedro Pascal do different things is exciting to me personally as someone who is going to look forward to roping you into the Last of Us discussion sometime in 2023. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, I mean, he's Can going to be the lead of a massive HBO show with no helmet on uh so that's something it sounds like you're gonna want to talk about maybe even be on a podcast on at vanity fair who knows but oh are you pitching my uh still watching seasons ahead of time for me now i'm just no i'm just saying it's it's within the realm of possibility i can see that happening you know a big marquee sunday night hbo show I and mean, you're doing it for week crash um but Good show. yeah i mean uh the last episode was interesting and hathaway digging in she's good <laughs> well, Nick Cage in the movie uh, is constantly saying how what they really want to make is a drama for adults, and I'm happy to say that this movie has a wider scope than that. It is a comedy for like teenagers and up. I think you just have mm. to have a passing familiarity with the Nick Cage highlights, um, but it also like, deepens an appreciation to how much Nick Cage, you know. I did just watch Con Air, so yeah, maybe that's it's fun to have these, you know, not IP. I, I mean, I don't know how weird it is that the IP is basically a person, but this like comparatively not IP uh, slate of movies that are actually in theaters. The mere mention of Con Air is enough to have that like that sharp twanging hook from the guitar score just like blaring through my head. Now, 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 now. anyway, Con Air. Yeah, my name is Cameron Poe. I'm gonna go home <laughs> see my baby girl. That's you a better southern accent than um than what <laughs> Nick Cage does in that movie. That that is the first thing you see uh, in the unbearable way to massive talent. Oh boy, it's kind of proof of his massive talent. Fell in and out of love. Shit, it is what it was. New wave, new day. 
ghost riding the cage Got flame, 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 flames Till I'm dead in my grave J.O.B. on a wave Surfing by and past the hay Fell in and out love David, yeah? tell the people the Wait, good news Wait, hold on, roll it back <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> Uh, date. I I don't Wait, no, know the, the, Dave, the did I tar- tell you tarnished, that I, tarnished Ehrlich. Did I tell you why I beat Elden Ring? It's me, actually. I did it. <laughs> oh, what, Katie? <laughs> yeah, David. It's like his heart. Uh, the the one you refer to as David, hereby known as your Elden Lord. I didn't fucking take over the lands between just to be referred to by my birth name. Totally <laughs> um, uh, tarnished Elden Lord. Yes, n- made it this no more. I am now uh, betrothed to whatever the fuck. Marika? I don't know. I didn't really pay attention to the lore. Uh, <laughs> I read the, Wikipedia, <laughs> read the Wikipedia summary when I was done. I'm not really into the, uh, the Elden game, the, the From Software games for the story, more for the ambience. Uh, yeah, no, this is just a segment of the show where all the hosts who have beaten Elden Ring, Elden Ring take a victory lap to celebrate the enormity of their accomplishment. And uh, is that anyone else? No? Just me, you know, a, a, a child, a family, a level 171 night in Elden Ring. You really can have it all, people. That's... I'm approaching 50% on uh, Lego Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I did it. Uh, I think I'm the first person in history. That's what the game have is you telling s- me. Have you seen the, uh, the Reddit uh, myth of let me solo her oh boy have have i ever um i mean for those of you who don't know i'll make this as short as possible there's a mechanic in the from software games elden ring included where for boss battles you can effectively summon players online real people to come and help you out you can also invade their games it's it's the really sort of abstruse multiplayer component in these games uh, and there is an a already infamously difficult secret boss in elden ring and there is a player, if you play the game on PC, which I do not, um, named Let Me Solo Her, who will, if you are lucky enough to summon them, uh, will arrive in your game wearing a completely naked, their, their avatar is completely naked, save for a loincloth and a uh, bucket on their head. And they will, as you stand back and just drink in the glory, uh, completely, absolutely, flawlessly dominate maybe the hardest boss that from software has ever made. Uh, and they have done this now there's an interview on IGN with them from the other day. They've done this now like 300 times. Um, I'm sure more by now. Uh, and I have found people spoofing that account on the PS five, but it's not the kind of thing that you can fake. I'm afraid once they actually show up, uh, I have not beaten <laughs> Melania yet. The name Melania, not as the Trump, but it's spelled slightly differently. Um, she is like Melania Trump, the goddess of rot. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did beat the proper main boss of the game after leveling up for a damn long time in uh, Mogwin's palace. The only place to do it, baby. And uh, I feel uh, deeply empty inside. I got to say, uh, uh, now what? that now that I've conquered the Elden Ring, yeah, I mean, what else really is there? It was like my game total had like 107 hours on it. I I don't know if I have the tenacity or or really the interest to do New Game Plus. I'd rather wait for some sort of DLC in the future. Um, but now, what do I got to do? Like my job, raise my child. That all seems so trivial compared to you know taking my rightful place on the throne, the Elden Throne, um, which let me tell you, I earned. Uh, and uh, no help for that final boss, my, my, uh, other than my 
uh, Black Knight Tish uh, Ash summon. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I've been like reading a book. I've been reading Jennifer Egan's new novel, The Candy House, which is like a quasi sequel to Visit from the Goon Squad. I've been watching, I watched like three David Cronenberg movies just to get ready over the weekend to. Did I read that Jennifer Egan book though? Uh, oh, I mean, I'm only halfway through, but I highly recommend everything she's written. If you like Goon Squad, then for sure. But you I may did. Wanna... I heard I should reread Goon Squad if I want. To yes. Read yeah, yeah. Very. Oh, it's. Okay, it's. I don't remember that book very well. Yeah. No. It's. I read it. I reread Goon Squad uh, the week before this book came out, and it was uh, instrumental. And also, I have not heard the audio book. I've actually never in my life listened to an audio book, which is not a point of pride. I think it would be a great way to digest books. I just had podcasts and music. Um, I'm, but I'm unfortunately realizing that my brain when reading books is very um, weak and yeah. I can't handle much. So, <laughs> see, but, but, but I remember Visit from the Goon Squad not being too much. Sorry, sound... I just really derailed Elden Ring. Well, no, I just book. I would say just as, before we rail it back that a uh, friend of the show, friend of the life, Griffin Newman does. I was surprised to hear, uh, not actually hear, but hear from him that he provides one of the voices on the Candy House um, audiobook, which would be cool and I think speaks to how because there's so many different parts how well acted uh and thorough that audiobook must be but anyway elden ring uh yeah beat it great accomplishment uh elisa came out of the kitchen after it happened and did not seem impressed uh you think being married to the elden lord would carry some weight with her but no um and uh maybe maybe we have listeners that are, are also playing elden ring what was you think like the item or gear piece that really made you feel Man, what a, like it you know, was your thing i want to do this like a post-game press conference after uh like a sporting event <laughs> you know we God just uh, and your team went out there we stuck to the plan um you know didn't let the game get away from us when things weren't going so well uh trusted our systems uh i really you know i knew that uh black knight tish the uh ash of war summon that i was really relying on the mimic tier for a while there but i kept hearing good things about this black knight tish had to go into like a hidden basement, a hidden dungeon inside a hidden dungeon inside a hidden dungeon to find it. But man, David can't see me shaking it. my head at all, uh, this, but I'm doing it. Yeah, you're not in your head because you're like, this all sounds right. And man, this all that, sounds like things I understand. That Absolutely. Summon, that summon really came through. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, great game. Closing thought. I was just really, and this is something we could parlay into a later conversation of some kind, maybe not about Elden Ring, but just when we the, the subject turns to world building in some other medium. I think the big takeaway for me for Elden Ring was just how it, it, in this open world um, where you can go anywhere, similar to something like Zelda Breath of the Wild, unlike Zelda, which I do not think is as special a game, at least not for me, there was really a sense of uh, uh, almost like Tolkien-sized journey through this place that felt like it had real contours and shape, even though you can sort of go wherever you want. And I remember getting through, and I'll make this quick, Katie, the royal city of Lyndell, which thinking I was towards the very end of the game. And then you take this big lift and you go up to the snowy plain and you sort of are wended around the northern corner of the map. And you get this feeling of the game sort of winnowing you down into narrower and narrower areas. Uh, and it gets this really tactile sense of, of space of like going from point A to B of what you are accomplishing. and you know, it was in addition to the number of hours it took me to beat the game, um, it did leave me with a feeling of like actually having gone. And I say this to someone again who like only grasped the story, which I think is really all you can do in Elden Ring. It is not narratively driven in the explicit sense, plot driven anyway. Um, I felt like I had gone on this 
massive quest. And that is uh, a really cool thing to get from a game you spend that much time on. Well, I've used this time to uh, put uh, the audiobook for Candy House on hold at the library, which I right. assume by the time that it's ready, I will um, be able to well, I don't know if that's going to serve you well squad. for the pop quiz we're about to do about what I was just talking about from Elden Ring. <laughs> I know that every time I've talked on this show, you have listened to me so so carefully. Katie, I have written it down in freehand whenever you speak. <laughs> I have volumes of conspiracy theory like no Carved into <laughs> a tablet. <laughs> Carved into my arm. Um, All right, onwards. This week for the third part of the show, I could not find a new release to get into because we're saving the Northmen for next week when I will have actually seen it. Um, but I had watched Boogie Nights because uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but I am going to be on screen drafts in a month about talking about movies from 1997. And that felt like a one, uh, like a very early one that needed to be revisited because um, I hadn't seen it. I didn't see this movie in 1997. I'd actually be very interested to know if you guys have a grasp on when you saw this movie, because as we were coming up as film nerds, I think in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was kind of a, you know, an essential text. I think it's about, like the year Magnolia came out. I know that I like saw that, like rented it on VHS or something. Um, but I think it's always kind of like stood there as like, you know, the beginning of what is still an essential filmmaker's career. Um, but as I'm watching it, I have a lot of thoughts about Boogie Nights, but I was so struck just from the beginning about how Paul Thomas Anderson just had a movie come out set in the San Fernando Valley in the 70s. <laughs> and no one really brought up Boogie Nights when talking about licorice pizza, which is so surprising to me in retrospect. Did it occur to you guys that we should have been comparing these two movies? And have I come on something completely unheralded here? Well, when you say comparing, to what end? I mean, just as sort of like a frame of reference, did you want like an MCU like crossover? Like you see, yeah. you see uh, Jack Horner in the background? <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I guess the timeline was because this is all earlier. I was thinking they could all go shop at Don Cheadle's uh, audio uh, speaker store, but uh, that's a decade later. Um, I mean, I was I thought a lot about Paul Thomas Anderson growing up as a director, and this is like reading more into someone who I do not know. But when he made Boogie Nights, he was famously like 28 or something like that. And I think Licorice Pizza in a lot of ways has the hallmarks of someone who is a father, who is, you know, looking back on childhood with nostalgia, who is gentler in some ways. And it's not that Boogie Nights is especially harsh movie. I think when you look at a lot of the reviews from the time, they're kind of like, wow, he found this sweetness in the porn world. Um, but I think the formal ambition and the and, and some cynicism baked into Boogie Nights fell in really strong contrast to Licorice Pizza with me. And they make such like just useful uh, footnotes as, you know, him looking back on two periods of time connected to his childhood uh, more loosely than others and, and coming at them from really different angles after 25 years has passed. Yeah, I could see that. I think part of my, well, I know why I didn't bring it up is because I watched it in 1999 and hadn't since. So there were large swaths of this movie. I forgot we're actually in this movie mm -hmm. uh, when I rewatched it uh, for this. <clears throat> but uh, like also, I think if you put like these movies in conversation, then I feel like 
it, it's more Paul Thomas Anderson doing what Licorice Pizza is doing, which is debating who is more adult if you bookend his career. Is hmm. he the young kid who's very businesslike and can, you know, turn out uh, a project? Or is he the older person who is hanging out with the young kids and still trying to do something cool, but maybe slightly less mature or questioning their maturity? I mean, I feel like him being inside licorice pizza makes more sense to me. Yeah, I mean, but I also see, I mean, I think, you know, what you're both saying about uh, the, the age of the filmmaker behind these movies is is accurate and really palpable. And when watching them, I mean, Boogie Nights is extremely the work of a young man, a, a gifted young man and about a young man with speaking of massive talent. Uh, but, you know, yeah. I think that like it has that unbridled youthful energy in a way that uh, even, you know, licorice pizza is is uncharacteristically uh, sort of sprightly in, in when you think of like the post Magnolia or post punch trunk love movies that PTA has made. It has some of that old frenzy to it, but it definitely coming out of a more paternal uh place but i think that one thing that's consistent between the two of them is the generosity that paul thomas anderson has for his characters uh, mm -hmm. and i think that that that's obviously pronounced when he's making a smaller um a, a less kaleidoscopic film like punch drunk love or uh Really, I mean, anything besides inherent vice that he's made over the last few years, but um, or there will be blood. I wouldn't. I mean, there, there is, there is some, uh, empathy for characters, and there will be blood. But I wouldn't call that like the dominant. Right, but I think when movie. you see something like Boogie Nights that has this sprawling cast of thousands, uh, the yes, the movie is two hours and thirty minutes long, and yeah, the last hour and change of it is real bleak uh, in a way that. You know, I, I you can still feel to this day PTA having and maybe this is just projecting on a young kid who's just like flexing all over the place and having a lot of fun. But it definitely it is a little bit strained compared to the up of the you know, the rise before the, the fall. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, not that it isn't masterfully composed and not that it doesn't give us Alfred Molina in a bathrobe, uh, you know, for all sure time. Does. Sure but, does. Uh, <laughs> The um, it's it's real bleak, not that scene necessarily with the rest of it. Um, but there is such love even in passing glances for all of these characters, characters who I think so many other films about this point of time would look down on uh, or condescend towards in some way. And I think even like William H. Macy's character, who is cocked harder than literally anyone has ever been cocked in film before. <laughs> um, and it does not end well for him. There is, you know, is, is he the most winning character in the movie? Not exactly, but he, I think, the, the movie has a measure of empathy for a situation. It has a lot of love for like Buck Swopes, the roller girl. Um, you know, it has Jack Horn. I mean, there are exchanges that are, that are coded with this real humanity between them. And one of my favorite exchanges in all of movies is when uh, he is talking, when Jack Horner is talking to Ricky Jay. I mean, that's, I'm confusing names with the real people, with the characters, but where Burt Reynolds is talking to Ricky Jay, <laughs> RIP to them both. And uh, you know, Ricky Jay says to him, you know, you made a real movie, Jack. And there's an other great line where he says, like, there are shadows in life. Uh, I mean, these are, yeah. <laughs> these are things that like, it, it just like a cool movie and just something that's about the steady cam shots and about the vibe and young people having sex and being silly and singing shitty songs, which are also very memorable with John C. Riley, would not stick to your bones in the way that this movie does. And I think there's like a real soul to it. I mean, it's a real movie, Jack. Always has yeah. been. 
Well, you think I think um, and not surprisingly, like Phil Seymour Hoffman's performance kind of really stands out to you watching it now and knowing he's been dead almost a decade now um, because that character is so pitiful. He's like just so sad kind of from the moment he walks on screen um, and he doesn't really have a redemptive arc. Like he doesn't get less pitiful, but the movie is so kind toward him somehow, like empathizing with him, despite that he's like making bad choices and like hanging around Mark Wahlberg in a way that everyone knows is a bad idea. And that feels really emblematic of that. Like that that's Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance. But that's also just the camera paying attention to him and giving him space to exist and not just be background filler. Yeah, Yeah, I I think think that character is a really interesting barometer for like keeping tabs on how Dirk Diggler is doing as a human being. Um, not yeah. that he's ever this like paragon of virtue, but um, there is something grounding about that Philip Seymour Hoffman character being there as as sad as he is. But it's also, you know, it's nice that he pulls through um, in a film where other characters don't. And there is something like really, you know, it's fucked up and, and coke fueled and all the rest of that. But like there, there is and this is not an insightful thing to say. I mean, the character is sort of saccharine sweet and built around that core of sweetness. But the relationship between Amber Waves and Dirk Diggler is like. There is a really strong maternal core there. And I think the film allows you to reconcile that with her failings as a mother to her biological children, um, her own habits and lifestyle. I mean, like you, you're able to sort of slice slice off um, some love for her in spite of everything else without feeling like pushed towards judgment. Yeah. Yeah, I think the difference in like me also between the two eras is I definitely saw it more as like a, plot filled romp the first time where it's like everybody sets up and then in the end there's consequences and there's cross cutting between people getting beats you know at the end and like look at look at how to make a film uh whereas now i think i've experienced a wider breadth of humanity and it allows me to sort of live with these characters a little bit more Mm. uh i don't like knowing more about mark Wahlberg, but (laughs) Knowing yeah. more, remembering more this time about Eddie and how his mom treated him and stuff, which is part of the movie that I forgot existed, um, really made uh, the entire thing more rich because yeah. I was older. That Opposite scene with his Star mom Wars. is really brutal. Like that might be yeah. the most brutal scene in the movie, despite all the violence that comes later. And Joanna Gleason is showing up for really just this one scene. Um, and again, like watching it as a parent, like it feels different now. Um, but you know, the, the, uh, PTA's willingness to go there that early in, in the part of the movie that is still really light. Um, and Mark Wahlberg, man, he really had it. He had, he had so much going for him in this movie. I mean, he, he has been good since, but holy cow, it's a great performance. Yeah. It's, he's uh, making faces. I don't think he ever made again. It's like, as he started <laughs> acting his like act, what he was capable of doing got smaller and smaller. Because yeah. here it seems to have like a really wide range, but I, I haven't seen that for Mark Wahlberg in a well, long time. Well, he's also been like, you know, trying to retreat from the subject matter of the film in some way and sort of shrink towards this, this uh, faith-based kind of cinema. I mean, I think the comments that he's made about wanting to take Boogie Nights back because it clashes with his faith have been slightly misconstrued. I think they were... Uh, said a little bit in jest, but it's true that he, you know, is behind watching Father Stew. It's impossible not to think that like this is the kind of movie you want to make that you're funneling millions of your own dollars into. Um, 
so that you can erase the stain of something like Boogie Nights, um, you know, a movie that, that he's burnt. fine with the departed and, and, and yeah, it's incredible I mean, violence that goes uh, with it and well, all the Transformers movies. I mean, don't get me started on like Catholicism and violence versus uh, the Stanford <laughs> text, but um I mean, there are elements of Father Stew, which is not a movie we need to talk about in this podcast, but is a movie I did have to see and review uh, that made me feel like it wasn't super far removed from co-star and producer Mel Gibson's uh, own Passion of the Christ. Again, Father Stew, written and directed by Mel Gibson's 31-year-old wife, or not wife, girlfriend, sorry, and baby daddy. Um, but uh, Baby no, mama. Baby mama. Baby mama. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, no judgment there. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, it's 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 great that, you know, we got this out of Mark Wahlberg anyway, beautifully cast. Uh, it's hard to imagine. And it's also like a lot of performance he's ever fully managed to escape. I mean, there are traces of Dirk Diggler, which obviously originated in Mark Wahlberg himself in everything since. It often feels like it's a commentary back on that role or reflected through it um, mm-hmm. or refracted through it. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, Boogie Nights, man. Great movie, but it's also like every every scene, every character carries weight. Feels like they could be the main character of their own film, um, and that only makes Dirk's narcissism sort of more appalling. Uh, and yeah, I mean, just fucking rules. But Katie, like to, to go back, like what do what do comparing or like putting this movie side by side with Licorice Pizza? They, they, we've talked a little bit about like what, what they tell you about how PTA has grown as a human being over the last 20 some odd years. But like, what does it say about that point in time? How his memories have changed? How they haven't? Uh, you know, I think and I'm sure we talked about this, like the way that licorice pizza is about men, basically, and about like a young woman kind of realizing that the world is full of men who are going to want. A variety of different things from her and she has to figure out how to navigate that. Alex like, Garland's I don't men think... in theaters May 2022. Sure. I'm sure they're about the same thing. Um, I don't think Boogie Nice is really about that. Not that its female characters don't matter to the story and have a lot of impact like we were talking about with Amber Waves, but I think in in like the notion of male gaze or like a a male dominated society is taken more as a given in Boogie Nights than I think in Licorice Pizza really intentionally questions that. And I think mm. a lot of the like porno chic of the 70s or even just the idea of like quote-unquote liberation in that period was like really driven by men in a way that people didn't recognize till later not that like pta didn't necessarily know that in the 90s but i think the way we think about it has changed and i think the way that he treats it um has changed a lot in a really interesting way it's like the first episode of this season if you must remember this but in movie form yeah kind of oh man what a good season that's happening right now (laughs) um yeah it really is like the way that like sex as liberation and the sexual revolution like didn't really account for women even if a lot of people pretended they did and a lot of women pretended that they did um in that period film never really got there it made a lot of illusions towards getting there but i guess you know whether boogie nights as it suggests is video or as other people sort of suggest it just sort of didn't become profitable to distribute x movies which i guess is the exact same thing yeah uh i imagine we'll get a series of these other narratives or they probably actually already exist and i just haven't been paying attention about what the internet did to this industry to make more horrible people yeah i mean i think boogie nice to his credit doesn't try to be like amber waves and roller girl are empowered by being in porn like i don't think it's really trying to argue for anybody like why they're doing this or whether it empowers i mean them. It i think there's a more character level there's you know jack's describing 
him he's making he's pitching uh eddie the, the first time and he's like i want to make a movie you know like after they squirt their joy juice they have to sit in it and they because i want to watch the end of the movie and i'm like and you know great but there is like a, a sort of period where it's like when we when this was a high money high class affair there was like a certain level of weird definite weirdness because the colonel is a pedophile but there was a certain outer veneer uh that sort of got washed away with the sex industry in the in the 80s yeah i imagine feel, that's feel, fairly true feel, like. feel feel my heat Sorry, Katie, uh, oh, oh, I was also thinking about structurally the movie, the way that Boogie Nights is so formal and like that opening scene, which like I haven't seen Goodfellas in a long time, but I'm pretty sure it's just a straight up homage to Goodfellas. And then the exact midpoint of the movie is turning 1979 to 1980 and William H. Macy shoots himself like the it's it's got all these flourishes that I don't think are distracting, but Licorice Pizza feels a lot more lived in and a lot more kind of like confident in its ability to like be really masterful without showing it off so much. Um, and that was that struck. Yeah. I mean, I think also it helps that uh, not literally every character in Licorice Pizza is high off their ass on Coke the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah. the movie can be in a slightly less uh, agitated uh, rhythm and pace and uh, live in life a little bit more. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, man, I was just I was still hung up on the kernel. Um, and just thinking about Philip Baker Hall and uh, maybe not his most lovable role, um, but how much I love him. <laughs> um, and uh, how, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson used him so well. I mean, he's he is uh, he's the best. Is he not Philip playing Baker the colonel? He's playing Floyd Gandolini. No, play. Yeah, that's what yeah, I was going to Yeah, he doesn't play the colonel. Um, the colonel is Robert Ridge. But he's a colonel adjacent, right? He's... Uh, yes. Yeah. I just watched this movie. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. He's financier. Okay. Yeah. Also, yeah. Philip Baker Hulse is still uh, with us, which I... He is still with us, which is... Glad to know. Yeah, the, the undercurrent as I was, like, grasping, talking slowly as I could to... Uh, <laughs> You're just glad he's still like, alive. ...try and fact check that he was the colonel, because I was like, that's not right. Um... Yes, the undercurrent there was I will be very sad when he is no longer with us. Uh, yeah, he's because, 91. I mean, you know, and, and speaking of the like Paul Thomas Anderson uh, sexual deviancy kick, the version of that that Philip Baker Hall plays in Magnolia um, is, is uh, you know, deeply as, as tragic and fucked up as that character is and, and increasingly fucked up as the movie goes along and crescendos. Um, it's also building your empathy for him in a really sort of daring way. And it's a high wire act that I think Philip Baker Hall is one of the only people alive who can pull off. And uh, it is magnificent, I think, continuation of the kind of humanity that PTA found in even his most disdainful characters in Boogie Nights. And, uh, you know, Philip Baker Hall been doing legendary shit for many, many decades and was was already a legend by the time that uh, PTA came along. But um, I think for our generation, seeing him for the first time, not in secret honor, but in things like Buggy Nights and Magnolia, sort of you know, forever imprinted him as those roles. But love that guy. Everyone should watch Boogie Nights. It's on HBO Max. Uh, you know, if somehow you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it since, you know, the 90s or since you were... Yeah. A younger person. Um, yeah, I guess the, the uh, recurring theme of this show is us looking at things as older people and looking back, which is the benefit of being on a podcast for 10 years. So 
yeah, go with our theme. Let's, let's use it. We're old. That's our <laughs> thing now. We're old. <laughs> That does it for this week's show. As mentioned earlier, next week we're talking about the Northmen. Get excited. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. Oh, I guess I go first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I am. Patches will be back eventually, we promise. I am your humble Elden Lord. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich, which is just the alt that I've been using. Um, you know, with my comm team, the comms team sets up a new account uh, for my for my reign um you can find me writing on indiewire i don't think there's a ton of super exciting stuff happening this week reviewed a interesting uh Celescope movie called stanleyville uh doing some stuff in greg's new film but next week there is a lot more going on so come back then uh you can find all of us more importantly on itunes at fighting in the war fighting in the war room uh leave us a review we'll read it live on the show or if you are out of the country but would still like to have your voice heard, please email us at Dave. At F-I-T-W-R dot podcast at gmail.com. Dave Gonzalez, you can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also listen to me on the Trial by Content podcast. We've extended the voting period. So if you hear us, you could still vote on this week's episode, which was best meet cute. And uh, since this is my podcast, vote for me. Uh, Would you say that yeah. the recent movie Fresh qualifies as a meat cute? Well, oh boy. Uh, boo. <laughs> boo. Ryder Yay. makes a podcast joke. Sorry, I was just trying to balance it out. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on Little Gold Men, where this week we're talking about Emmy season and looking ahead to what's coming and a little bit about the Northmen, um, which I still haven't seen. Uh, and on Still Watching This Week, produced by Dave, we're, we're closing out We Crashed, as mentioned, and Hathaway fucking rules on this show, so everyone should watch it and listen to me talk about it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can tell us your favorite character in Boogie Nights, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the Northmen, who is cinema's worst uncle? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. And uncles really do get a bad rap. <laughs> People dancing, 